Life is funny. Just when I want to do it my way, truth and morality tell me what to do. And then when I want someone to tell me what to do, the universe demands that I make a choice myself. What are we supposed to do with that? Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey, Consciously, welcome back. So last week we started off a discussion about how we as humans can operate in that space between doing what God wants and doing what we want, or better yet, appreciating the way in which God is working for us in our lives and the way in which maybe we're working for us in our lives. But first, before we get back to that, if you're new to the podcast, do us a favor, five-star review, and subscribe, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, all the good places. Also, uh, share the podcast with a friend. Uh, it's a great way to spread the good message, uh, get good listeners and uh, people that can appreciate what we're trying to do over here. Also, uh, take a look at our social media, The Light Revealed, a uh, nice series on gratitude, serenity, and humility over the next couple weeks. And also, you can take a look at my book, Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Your Creator. Our Creator is ours. All of us. MosaicPress.com, Amazon, Jewish bookstores. Okay, back to us. So we had a we had a listener who posed a question that I thought was great and it's been in my mind and it actually related to an idea I was thinking about in relationship to an understanding I have of the famous metaphor of the Balatanya of the, the king in the field, which relates to El. So the listener was asking about, you know, how do I manage, how do I walk that line between A respecting myself or appreciating my own contributions to my life and also appreciating the nature in which God is acting in my life. But there was a further aspect to the question because she was also asking about the separation between bittel, which is surrender, doing what God wants, and self-esteem, which is kind of acting from my own conviction. And in last episode, we talked very conceptually about the idea. We did talk some practically about the idea of having two parts to a gratitude list. For those of you who are starting to practice a gratitude list, it's a great idea, right? Spending time every day, writing down five things, 10 things, 20 things that you're grateful for. It's a, it's a tremendous practice. And the idea that I proposed is that within that, you can talk about the ways in which God is working for you in your life, and then also the ways in which God is presented you with power and opportunity to act for yourself in your life. But beyond that, I wanted to talk about practically about how a person makes decisions, because it's something I've had many conversations with many people about, and it's something that I really think I've been able to pick up a little bit of a conceptual awareness of how to do that properly. And it actually relates to the idea of hishtadlis, of doing our part, and actually really relates to the most fundamental existential question of all, which is free will. Like, do we have free will? Or is everything determined based on how God wants it to be? That's a pretty important thing, because if everything's as the way God wants it to be, then nothing matters. And we're all just stuck in a matrix and nothing makes a difference. And if everything is not predetermined and we're determining everything, then that makes us kind of gods in our own lives. And obviously Judaism presents us a construct where we kind of both things can be true at the same time. Both God predetermines everything that occurs, and yet we also have free will. Now, there's a point that I've talked about here on the podcast that I find very, I'm very enamored by, and I find very important. It's an idea that the Lubavitch Rebbe talks about in his discussion of Purim. Because 
The Purim holiday is basically where the Jews are facing this moment of possible annihilation by Haman, and Haman utilizes, a Gorel utilizes a lottery to decide which day he's going to kill the Jews. And that action, that that lottery is seen by the sages as being very, very critically important to the main theme of the day, to the degree that they call the holiday Purim, which alludes to the poor, the, the lottery by which Haman decided how he was going to kill or when he was going to kill the Jewish people. And the Rebbe sees this as an explanation of why Purim is such a monumental day in the Jewish calendar to the degree that Yom Kippur, which most Jews assume is the holiest day of the year, is really only Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim. That Purim's greatness far exceeds the, the holiness and greatness of, of Yom Kippur. So Rebbe explains that what Haman was trying to do by going for the lottery was tapping into an area of God's relationship with the world where everything is random, where it doesn't really matter, right? As as famously we say on Purim, and I talked about this a few episodes ago, where famously on Purim we say that person has is responsible to get drunk until he doesn't know the difference between blessing Mordechai and cursing Haman, because at the end of the day, both are necessary for the overall narrative reality, right? You need the villain and the hero in the story in order for the story to occur. So therefore, in that space, right, where God just wants the story to play out, the villain and the hero are both equally valuable. So Haman was kind of compel, uh, appealing to God from that space, hoping that perhaps he could defeat the Jewish people. And the beauty of Purim is that God said, in that space, I choose the Jewish people. Now, the Rebbe says something very, very powerful over here that relates to like a philosophical or, a, or an existential point. He says that ultimately, if we think about it, in order for free will to exist, there has to be two equal options available to the individual. That if I'm faced with a decision and logic or morality dictates that I act in one way or the other, that I don't actually have free will because logic or morality dictate that I do that. I could act opposite my morality or my logic, but then I'm just acting in my desires or my emotions, and that's also not free will. So in order for free will to exist, you have to have two equal sides, two equal options. And then for whatever reason, I choose the option that I choose, not for a reason. There's really almost is no reason. It's The reason is because I chose that, that that's ultimate free will. Ultimate free will only comes about when there are two equal options available to an individual. So too, like by God, so God chooses the Jewish people. That's the greatness of Purim. God chooses the Jewish people when theoretically he could have chosen either, but he chooses the Jewish people because he does. Now, what this reveals is that Bechira, free will, comes when what God wants is not clear, when we have two even choices. If the choice is obvious, then there's no Bechira. And if there's no Bechira, then there's no personal role. And this relates back to the point that Miriam was saying, what about Bittal? And what about personal responsibility? What about surrender? And what about my own desire to act? Well, it depends. When God makes clear what it is he wants us to do, which sometimes it's clear and it's obvious, then, the, then our job is to be mavatal ourselves, to act with self-sacrifice and do what is right, what morality or logic dictate to be truth. And obviously I'm talking about where there's an ultimate morality or logic that's dictating what to do, meaning it's obviously, it's intuitive, self-evident what the right thing is. In those circumstances, I have no choice but to be mavatal myself. There's no free will. Even if I were to give in, I'd be only giving in to the side of darkness. I'd be being mavatal myself, surrendering to the side the, of opposite good, of unholiness, instead of surrendering myself to the side of holiness. So that's not where I belong. The question is, where do I belong? 
So anyone who's lived life knows that there are, are certain points in our lives where we actually are given some measure of free will. We're faced with two, what appear to be, for all intents and purposes, two even choices. And the interesting thing, as I've kind of spent some time talking to a number of people who face opportunities like this, is sometimes they're relatively benign or random, and sometimes they're incredibly substantive and impactful, very important decisions. And yet, when you look at it objectively, there's nothing, there's no logic dictating what the person should do. And oftentimes when I'm in those circumstances, let's say in like in a therapy type practice or in the helping field, turn to them and say, guess what? You get to choose. That's the privilege that you've come to. You've come to a place where God is allowing you to choose free will. You get to go to this school or you get to go to that school. You get to pursue this career or you get to pursue that career. Now, what's going to occur after that choice, we have no control over. But in that moment, we have the opportunity to choose. And it is one of the most powerful things a human being can do because it relates to the essence of free will. It's in that moment where logic and morality don't dictate what I should do. Where in that moment, I can only choose to surrender to good or choose to surrender to darkness. But in fact, I have two goods in front of me and I get to choose which good I want. The question is how to do that. What do I do when I'm faced with one of those opportunities? I'm not sure what to do. I don't know what to do. I've been through it. How do I make that choice? So this is what I think. Making a healthy choice in these circumstances involves a six-step process, six concrete layers that you have to walk through in order to come to a place where you can take action with a sense of, of clarity that right or wrong, I was given the opportunity to choose, and I took that opportunity with tremendous meaningfulness and expressed my bechir chavshis, my free will. So obviously, the first thing starts with an intellectual evaluation. You need to take a look at the thing. And sometimes that looks like a pro and con list. Now, oftentimes, when people make a pro and con list, what happens is they're expecting the pro and con list to offer an obvious outcome. And sometimes they do, but oftentimes, particularly when we're faced with a problem that seems like it's a bechira-based problem, it's a free-willed oriented challenge that I have to choose, the pro and con list is not going to give you an obvious outcome. And yet a pro and con list is often useful because we are thinking human beings. We get to think about things. So oftentimes when a person's faced with what appears to be two equal choices, it's really good to take some time to evaluate what actually those choices are. What are the good consequences and what are the negative outcomes that might come as a result of making those choices? And what are my feelings about that? The next piece is to really try to gain some sense of psychological insight. What is driving me one way or the other? Now, again, here, sometimes that psychological impact, insight will make clear that one choice or the other is the obvious choice. But then again, then it's not a Bechira free will situation. You're just doing what makes sense. Okay, but assuming that that doesn't happen, what comes next? What comes next is moral clarity. And again, here, we're not expecting morality to make the choice for us. Sometimes it does, but oftentimes it doesn't. But nonetheless, it is useful to try to understand what the moral rules of reality, if you're coming from a Torah-based background, what the Torah would say or the halacha would say about these issues. That might mean looking at a book, or it might mean seeking out guidance. Now, sometimes people go to a sage in order to ask their advice on what they should do, and that's a wonderful thing to do. But sometimes what you'll find is you'll go to a sage, and the sage doesn't necessarily decide for you because the choice is not clear. And what they'll say to you is, well, you have to choose which one you want, because morality doesn't necessarily tell you which one to do. It can't. It's not set up that way. If that were the case, if 
the books and the sages knew exactly what to do at every every single moment, then we would just be automatons expected to choose to surrender to that which is absolutely right. But anyone who's tried to live a spiritual path knows that even though, even if 90% of the time, what's right is dictated by some morality or some law, oftentimes what's right is not. So the next thing is to kind of have a sense of emotional mindfulness. How do I feel about the thing? And to spend some time thinking about that. How do I feel about these two options? Which one does, feels right? Which one doesn't feel right? What are my feelings? Where are my feelings interacting with what's going on? And then the final thing is to take some time to think about what I what my existential conviction is, what I think I should do, what I think is the right thing. And then the final step, the sixth step, is just to take action, to jump in. Okay, so let's just go back. So right, we need to put things down in black and white. We need to write out a pro and con list. We need to understand the variables. Then we need to get in touch with what's actually going on, the underlying variables that are at play, like psychologically. Then it's really important to get a better understanding of where morality or Jewish law informs us in this situation. What's the situation? What are your options? Consult with an expert to understand the variables. And then how are you feeling about it? What's your heart and gut telling you? Then pray and reflect and meditate. And that means talking and listening. Talk to God and listen for what the right thing is. And then finally take an action. If you're at this point and it's not clear already, then the beautiful thing is that you're playing with house money. Relax, take a deep breath, be willing to be wrong, and decide. Jump in. Congratulations, you're a human being. You're a free-willed human being, more special than an angel. The only being in the entire creation of all reality that has the opportunity to choose. Now, this point of the journey can be super hard because after we've gone through all those different points, there's always that annoying question about, am I doing the right thing? And this, I think, is where trust and faith come in. Not only just trust and faith in God, but trust and faith in yourself. Right? Again, we're going back to this point that Miriam was asking about, which is, well, where does surrender come in and where does personal conviction and personal strength come in? And I think the answer is oftentimes, more often than not, surrender is, our, is, is what's at play. The obvious choice the moral choice, the good choice, which is dictated by a morality and an objective law, tells us what to do. And our job is to surrender to good instead of surrendering to bad. But sometimes, sometimes we are given the opportunity to make a free will choice. And then we have the responsibility as human beings to use our powerful minds to try to understand and evaluate and be mindful and seek out a truth that is what's best for us. And when we do that, we are given the opportunity to not only trust in God, but also to trust in ourselves and our own souls. Now, there's a beautiful story about trust that's been in my mind recently, and I wanted to tell it here. So once a grandson comes to his grandfather and says, Grandfather, can you explain to me what, what trust is? What's bitachon? And the grandfather says, sure, let's go to the circus. And the grandson's confused, but he goes along with his grandfather to go to the circus. And it's, it's a beautiful, you know, it's a wonderful circus. There's lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and there's uh, clowns, all sorts of elephants, amazing things. And then finally, there's the final event of the circus. There's a tightrope tied way, way high on the top of the circus tent. And the tightrope walker comes out and climbs all the way up the ladder to the top, and they roll out a safety net, and he begins to walk across. And of course, he pretends that he's wobbly, 
and he makes his way across the first time. The grandson is covering his eyes, barely can see. And the grandfather says, what's the matter? And he says, well, I don't know if he's going to make it across. I don't want to see him die. And he said, ah, let's see what happens. So of course, the, the tightrope walker goes through his whole routine and he goes back and forth. And then he has somebody on his shoulders. He's carrying a heavy block and he goes across on a bicycle, et cetera, et cetera. And as time goes on, the grandson drops all of his fears and he's just you know, cheering away. And the grandfather turns to the grandson and says, well, what's happening now? He says, well, I, I believe that he's going to make it. You know, his grandfather says, well, why are you scared? He says, well, I believe he's going to make it. He's made it across so many times. I, I, I truly believe he's going to be okay. And the grandfather says, okay, let's see what happens. Then finally, the, the full finale, the tightrope walker wheels out a wheelbarrow full of all sorts of heavy bricks. Now, if anyone's ever tried to push a wheelbarrow, it's very, it's very un- the weight, the weight distribution is very odd, right? So the, the tightrope worker is going to walk across and here the grandson's kind of getting nervous again because he knows how heavy it is and how dangerous it is. And then not only that, the tightrope walker says, we're going to take away the safety net. And the grandson's clapping away and the grandfather turns to the grandson and says, aren't you scared? And the grandson says, no, he will surely be okay. And the grandfather says, ah, this is faith. You have faith in the tightrope walker. And the grandson remembers that this whole trip to the circus is a lesson. So he says, no, but what grandfather, what is trust? What is bitachon? And the grandfather says, bitachon would be if you would climb up that ladder all the way to the top and get in the wheelbarrow. That would be trust. You see, once we've done the work, the job, the real job, I think the real bechira that we have to make once we've done the work, whether the work is evaluating what morality tells us is true or law tells us is true, or whether it's our own inner conviction that tells us that we feel that this is what's right for us, in either of those situations, the real test, the real Bechira is, do we get in the wheelbarrow? Do we trust God? Do we trust ourselves? Whether it's bittel or whether it's self-confidence, it all comes down to trust. It's a beautiful quote from Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, the difference between belief and trust is that you can believe, but then act opposite. But when you trust, you just lean in. When you have bitachon, you get in the wheelbarrow. And that bitachon can mean a faith and a trust in God, that God is telling you to do the right thing. It can mean a faith and trust in your own conviction on what you feel to be true. But ultimately, the faith and trust is a faith and trust in the process, a leaning into what's in front of you to take action, to see what happens, to be okay that you might be making a mistake. That place where bittel and self-reliance meet is in action, is in taking action, is in moving forward, putting our left foot in front of our right foot. Sometimes to get to action, we need bittel, we need surrender, and sometimes to get to action, we need to have faith in ourselves and do ourselves justice by thinking things through and making the best decision we can. But at the end of the day, it comes down to action, to leaning in, to meeting the king in the field on his way to the palace, where he receives his crown, and we're the one who gets to give it to him. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place, New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tsipora Basravaron. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email us or on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Oh,